Hello and welcome to From the Void Up, world building with science and sociology. This is a world building guide for anybody who cares too much about the minutia. I am your host, Tyler Hadar, and if we're all ready to go, let's get building. Okay, so this episode is actually going to be a wrap-up for the natural sciences for now. Obviously, I will be coming back to it because these are only five episodes and I have barely scratched the surface of figuring out the geography of a world. There is so much more to discuss. But after this episode, we'll be moving on to social sciences for a bit and more open-ended questions about world building. I'll explain more at the end. So for today, we are going to be talking about rivers. These are a staple of every fantasy setting ever, probably because they are extremely important to us in real life. They are beautiful to look at, amazing at transportation, incredibly important for the ecosystems around them as well as in them, and just generally a staple for any world that has water in it. Their relationship with a region's geography is rather consistent, so making sure that you actually follow the water's movements in a non-magical terrain is like, it's a thing. So, to help figure out where and how your rivers would flow in your world, we're going to need to discuss how they form and how they move. And we're going to be discussing this with reference to one of Tolkien's maps. Again. The River Anduin specifically. This is a classic, it is very long, has cool gorges, waterfalls, and of course, the classic Argonath. It's the River Nile, the Hudson, the Yangtze of Middle-earth, but like most geographical features in Middle-earth, it has some problems. Standard disclaimer, Tolkien is incredible and nitpicky in his own ways, but just not this way. So he has become an example. Rivers are, at their most basic definition, water moving in the path of least resistance downhill. They travel from high elevations down the fastest route they can find to the lowest elevation they can find, which is sea level or until something's blocking further movement. Rivers always flow to the ocean, or at least try to. And this the River Anduin does do correctly. It moves towards the oceans. How it does this is a little less accurate. If rivers are supposedly following the path of least resistance, then all of the water in one area should have a similar path. If water is coming out of a mountain range, unless there's a ridge traveling between two points of runoff, those streams should eventually converge. And this isn't something that happens at the source of the Anduin. There are actually a series of streams and creeks running out of the Grey Mountains at the northern edge of the map, kind of moving eastward away from the tip of the Misty Mountains. One of these goes east, and the other one goes directly south, which is considered to be the Anduin's headwater, as it's called. This seems initially to be kind of fine, but it's actually really difficult to explain why it would happen. The water going east is apparently going to the lowest point in the geography, so why isn't the River Anduin also going that way if water should be moving to the lowest point, if that's east? But then, of course, if the Anduin is going to the lowest point, why is the Forest River in the other direction? You know, these these two directions cannot coexist 
unless there is something in between them. One of these locations has to have a steeper, easier path than the other, and the water will move in that direction whether we want it to or not. This is extremely obvious when you consider drainage basins. Drainage basins are essentially watersheds. It's the entire region that drains into a specific river, lake, bay, or whatever. It's made up of the local terrain surrounding it, going from the mountains all the way down through the valleys until you reach the shore or whatever the end point is. These watersheds have singular lowest points and a singular fastest route there. Small streams start from waters that are coming up from the higher regions in this surprisingly large area, and what doesn't get soaked into the ground then moves across the top as runoff. Those drops and rivulets of whatever's melting, raining, seeping out of the ground or whatever, then join up into streams. And since all of the streams are trying to get to the lowest point, they'll all join up together into larger creeks, which are then also going to the same place, to the other lowest point that they can find, and they all join up together into rivers. Mountains tend to feed into watersheds quite frequently, especially off the side of the range. All of those tall chunks of rock allow for a lot of runoff to cascade down, turning into rivers rather quickly. Almost 100% of the time, those runoffs turn into one consistent river in the end. Inside the ranges, there are tons of ridges to separate streams, but once the mountains end, it's all one watershed. So it should all go in generally the same direction. So why don't the two major rivers coming out of the Grey Mountains all go through the same watershed? The Forest River goes east, towards the Sea of Rune, which makes sense, because if that could potentially be the lowest altitude of its region, and it can't go further south than that. But then, like I said, why does the Anduin not do that too? Are there some invisible ridgelines stopping it? Like, the Forest River literally splits away from what looks to be pretty darn close to the same source as the Anduin. That's just not how it works. If they were near each other that physically close, they would be essentially within the same watershed and the same downward slope towards the ocean. They would not go in opposite directions. Kind of similar to this, but a little bit more specifically to something that a lot of people mess up in maps that I mean technically Tolkien didn't do, but a lot of people make this mistake. Rivers never split. This is a flat rule of rivers. They never go downstream and become two separate rivers. Consider this, just theoretically speaking. A river is moving south, let's say, when it reaches an obstacle blocking its path. The river splits the water on either side of this obstacle to keep moving. The right path is easier, let's say, than the left path, so more water starts going down on the right side. Now, there is so much more water running along the dirt and rocks on the right, so it gets more energy and starts to move that dirt and stone out of its way. It erodes this path even more, and now it is even easier to move along the right. The left path, on the other hand, is slower, and therefore water moving through it loses energy. The rivers needed that energy to carry stuff like the dirt that gets mixed in. So without the energy to hold on to it anymore, it starts dropping this sediment down along the left path around the obstacle. It gets harder and harder to move through, so less water goes that way. 
eventually only the right side of the obstacle actually gets the river going around it anymore. So boom, the river does not split. Or conversely, if you reach a ridge line where it could potentially go on one side or the other, one of those routes is going to be easier to move down and the other is going to turn into like maybe a pool or something. Water's not going to go down there anymore because the other side is going to be easier. Rivers do not split. They really, really don't. One way will always be slightly easier than the other, and when that happens, the river will erode that path down until it's even more efficient. So let's say the obstacle is impossible to move around. It's the lowest area in the watershed, and there is nowhere else for it to go. That is where lakes form. Lakes get fed by the river and their tributaries until the waters reach above the next lowest point along the lake's edges. This will then become a second part of a river as it runs out of space to hold the water, now actually able to overflow and go for lower ground. However, only one of these outflows will ever exist. If there, there could theoretically, for a short time, be two drains in a lake, but eventually the lake would actually lose enough water that whatever that upper exit was is now too high for the water to reach again anyway, so it can only continue to go out the lower, probably original outflow. At least of all of these things, the River Anduin does not split partway through. River splits are just really just not a thing. Don't, don't include them, please. And lakes will only really ever have one outflow, even if they have multiple inlets, because that's just how water works. It's just, fluids are just the laziest. They're just going for the easiest route, and there's always one singular easiest route. But back to what the Anduin does wrong, because that's more educational, quite frankly. The river, if you look at it on a map, is running parallel to the Misty Mountains. So, this is kind of a bit of an issue when you think about the concept of rivers always trying to get away from high land. Mountains tend to have foothills and long, slow slopes away from them on either side of their ridgeline. If you recall from the plate tectonics episode, mountains are formed by rocks getting crushed together and elevated. So when they run into each other, their ridgelines show the directions that those plates forming the mountains were moving. So a mountain running from north to south means that the two plates hit while moving east and west, which means the foothills and slopes away from the center of the collision would be sloping to the east and to the west, meaning traveling downhill should be water moving to the east or the west, you know, downhill. The fact that the Anduin doesn't move away from the Misty Mountains suggests that there are some other ridgelines, maybe older mountains, or generally something blocking it from going farther east. And when it does actually start meandering eastward, it's moving closer to Mordor, where there actually are slopes on the eastern side to hold it next to the Misty Mountains, although it is also trying to avoid the White Mountains, so that kind of makes sense. But overall, to all intents and purposes, it looks like Mirkwood is what's keeping the Anduin from growing east. If you're looking at the map, the only thing east of the Anduin is Mirkwood. That's the only thing keeping it from leaving the Misty Mountains. But the thing is, trees really don't stop rivers. 
like they can maybe slightly adjust it, but like they, a forest will not stop water. There's literally, you can see the forest river, like the forest river knows what it's doing. We can respect that river. The Anduin doesn't make much sense. If geomorphology was a game of rock, water, tree, water beats literally everything if you give it enough time. Trees could potentially support riverbanks along the way to slow down the rate of erosion, but that's about it. If a river has found a path downwards, it is going to go there. It doesn't matter if it has to wash out a huge cliff, it will with enough time. Rivers and mountains and going through mountains is kind of complicated and unlikely unless the river existed first and the mountains rose up underneath them. It's weird and complicated. Rivers don't like going uphill. So like if it's starting in a, in a mountain, river will beat rock. But if it's having to cut through a mountain, rock will beat water. It's a, it's a time. Because water really just likes to take the fastest, most direct route, so many smaller streams will frequently just cut down the steepest slope they can find. Once at the bottom, they'll either follow whatever channel they've cut through the years between the rocks they are surrounded by, or just generally keep moving in pre-designed paths, slowly cutting away any, any potentially more efficient path until it erodes into new river routes. So that's the broad strokes of a river. It runs away from any uphill place until it can get to the ocean or some other lowest point, which means it's time to start looking at what rivers look like at different stages between source and mouth. Depending on how old a river is, or basically how far from the source it is, it will behave differently. At the source, water is fast moving and the river is narrow. This is mostly because all sources are in the mountains for the most part. There are, of course, a couple of types of sources that will make a difference in the overall life of your river. First, you've got your glacier sources or glacial headwaters. These types of rivers, if the main source is a glacier, typically dry up in colder seasons a little bit, uh, never entirely, but there is definitely a significant change in water levels between the winters and the melting summers, which can lead to swells in the river. These systems are extremely important for any river life, as they are accustomed to the ever-changing seasons they experience in a river. And there's also actually a really excellent and in-depth article about the Alaskan rivers and their relationships with glaciers, particularly as the glaciers are melting off. It's on the National Park website if you want to learn more about glacial headwater ecosystems. It's very cool. Similar to glaciers, though, there are snow melts. The Colorado River is a pretty decent example, as are some rivers in Switzerland or basically any really tall mountainous area if, of course, the region is capable of getting snow. Over the winters, a little runs as daytime melts lets out some water if it's warm enough, which allows low-leveled rivers in the winter. And then in the early spring and summer, everything just melts and then it floods. The sudden flow of water seriously jostles the region, and depending on how much it snowed, it can have massive spikes in how much water there is. And then in the summer, the spikes go back down, and the water is only contributed to by whatever rains the region gets in the hot season. This could mean consistent runs of water, or it could mean that the whole system slows down to only a trickle. Remember your climatographs from last episode, and look them up for whichever sort of biome your, your stream is starting in. 
The rain distribution across the months can help you determine how your river is going to flow throughout the year. Those climatographs are so useful for everything, and that's why they are my second favorite type of environmental science graph. And then, of course, you've got your classic areas where it doesn't really snow, kind of like tropical rainforests. So it might just be constant strong rivers or extremely fluctuating rivers, again, depending on how consistent the contributing rainfalls are. Pretty much all of these sorts of headwaters are near mountains, which means they go downhill and they have steep slopes to cut down into, which makes a lot of canyons and gorges and ravines, depending on how long they've been cutting out that particular path. The steeper the slope and the more water running through, the more energy these early streams have, and with higher energy they can move larger materials as they flow. And this means literally anything from shifting whole boulders to carrying loose dirt out of rocky or muddy banks. They cut deep channels and tend to make V-shaped valleys around them, unless this is a glacier source, because glaciers are coming through glacier valleys, which are very particularly U-shaped because that's kind of how the glacier carves out rocks. So that's the only time your river valley at a, head, at a headwater would probably be in a U-shaped valley. And then, of course, there are a couple other stream sources that are less energetic, and these tend to come from spring and marshes. Springs form from where the groundwater table ends up on top of the soil. In really healthy soils, at a certain level down, there is just so much water that's absorbed into it that it is considered saturated. Like, it's just wet mud down there. You could pick up a handful of it and squeeze the water out and potentially drink that. That would be considered the groundwater table. That's where people tend to get water from wells. Sometimes the dirt erodes away so far down that the upper levels of the water table become exposed so they can turn into pools. These are springs and they have runoff that turns into streams. Depending on how full the water table is, the rivers can be of different strengths from this point. Marshes and also lakes can be considered headwaters, as long as they don't have any streams running in as sources for them. If a lake is just collecting waters, let's say in like a caldera, a big volcanic mountain basin, it could eventually reach levels high enough that the water is slipping out of an outlet. This water trickle counts as a source. Marshes or swamps or just generally wetlands can also overflow and turn into streams as water is released from their collection areas. These types of sources, springs included, are sometimes not as steep and therefore lower energy, so they might turn into mid-run stream shapes faster. They carve less since there's no guarantee that they have steep slopes to build energy out of. These sorts also probably won't have massively noticeable levels of water fluctuation. Headwaters tend to be pretty cold and turbulent, which mixes air in way more easily into the water, making them much higher in oxygen levels. The colder the water, the more dissolved oxygen it can hold, and therefore the more animal life it can sustain. As the original stream moves out of the faster sections from fleeing from its source, tributaries come in and help make the stream into a full river, which sometimes makes it hard to figure out which one is actually considered the official headwater, but if you're constructing the stream yourself, you can just, like, know what it is. You can just pick one out and make it kind of noticeably larger, so it's kind of obvious. And after all of these different tributaries blend together into a river, it reaches the second section of its course, which is the middle river course. By the way, tributaries can feed in at any point during the river, but 
it really has to kind of be a larger size stream for a lot of this middle river course action. It's a little less exciting though. I said action like it was exciting, but you know, um, you know, there aren't any waterfalls here. There are no bouldery banks. Why did I spell bouldery like that? I spelled bouldery very wrong. Um, let's just move on. But yeah, there are no waterfalls, no bouldery banks, and no moving fast cold waters to splash around in. But it's still actually kind of important and decently cool still. I mean, all of rivers are pretty cool. This just happens to be a bit lazier and a bit more meandering. If the river is over one year old, it will have curves in it. Like, if it's older than a month, it probably already is starting to bend a little. Meanders are a necessity for rivers if they have a wide open valley to play around in. This section of the river is categorized as both having erosion as a frequent thing, like the headwaters, but also deposition, depositing sediments that it's picked up and carried, which typically also is the entirety of river mounds. So it's kind of like an in-between blend. So the interplay between erosion and deposition leads to meanders. On one big bank, let's say, the water starts to wash away one of the easier routes it's found, where it can actually start to move a little bit more swiftly and erodes this curve, like a little, like a little bump at the side of that river. And then on the other bank of the river, it's now moving slower, so it's starting to deposit those sediments, which makes it harder and harder to move through, which leads to even more deposition. So one side is eroding outwards, and the other side is depositing inwards, and overall you get like ha half an S shape. And then the water that's moving around is then going to slingshot. It's going to essentially just whip around and whack the other bank that was originally getting deposited on. So then it starts eroding that side, and then the inside then turns in to the interior bend inward deposition side again. So it starts making these S shapes. These are called meanders, and I saved a really good visual explanation on my, one of my YouTube playlists, the river one. Um, so go check it out. Minute Earth has very good visuals of the growth of meanders. And meanders will continue to get wider and wider as it erodes until sometimes the loops become so large on like, let's say the right side of the river, the loops bending out to the right get so large that they literally run into each other. And there's a gap where the water can now move and entirely ignore the left side of the river's loop. So the water can take this shorter course, essentially no longer interacting with a whole loop that it previously traveled through. And that old section becomes abandoned and turns into an oxbow lake because the water's no longer going in and out. Again, that Minute Earth video I saved for you all has extremely good visuals for this whole process. I do recommend. Depending on how shallow the rivers get, sometimes you can get river braiding, which is essentially when the river breaks up into smaller streams that weave together over a very flat plain. Rivers at this point no longer have thin valleys or gorges or ravines. They now have wide floodplains on either side, meaning it can flow about and mess around with its banks way more easily. River braiding, however, really only happens in the lower parts of a river, especially those that have fluctuating flows, like the Tanana River in Fairbanks, Alaska. Look up braided rivers. Seriously, they are so pretty. <laughs> they look amazing and they are very cool. And then you get to the mouth of a river. This is the lower course, 
And this is where the river meets whatever it is moving out into, most likely an ocean or a sound or a bay or something like that, occasionally also lakes. So at this point, anything that the river has picked up along the way gets dropped. All of its energy as it's meeting this opposing body of water just dissipates, and just everything collapses, and just all of the sediments drop. These become really nutrient-rich areas because the sediments at this point are considered alluvium, which is very high in nutrients. So plants love it, fish love it. It's amazing to go fishing here because of all of the alluvium and all of this biodiversity that fills up in these river deltas. But if you disrupt the mouth, it can seriously harm any of your fishing or wildlife in the region. Dams along the along the river can also start to like filter out some of these sediments along the way, or generally slow the flow of water to the mouth, which destroys whatever ecosystems are thriving there, as well as stopping fish migration up and down the river, as many species like salmon do to breed. So blocking river flow is actually extremely detrimental to downstream ecology, which is why hydroelectricity is considered one of the largest double-edged swords to all of the renewable energy sources, especially in comparison to solar or wind. Which is why it would be nice to figure out hydroelectricity in a way that minimizes disruption, but its very nature is disruption, so it's pretty hard to figure out. And people can cause serious damages to rivers just by existing near them, however, and like, I am not expecting too many medieval societies to be working on hydroelectric dams. It's a shame that they're really fragile, because they're one of the best geographic features to settle near, though. Nowadays, we know a lot more about river health, which means we can do our best to help the rivers that we have been hurting for centuries, like the Connecticut River. Today, we are going to be talking to somebody from the Connecticut River Conservancy about this river and river health in general to figure out a little bit more about what healthy rivers actually look like or don't. Thank you so much for joining me on From the Void Up. If you could just quickly introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, Ryan O'Donnell, and I'm the Water Quality Monitoring Coordinator for the Connecticut River Conservancy. Nice. So could you tell me a little bit about what the Connecticut River Conservancy is and what you guys do? Sure. We're a watershed organization that serves the entire Connecticut River watershed, uh, which is a pretty big watershed encompassing parts of Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. The Connecticut River drains into Long Island Sound and provides about 70% of the fresh water that enters Long Island Sound. That is actually more water than I expected. So could you tell us a little bit more about then the history of the Connecticut River? How much do we know about like how it started, um, how it's grown over the years? There's a decent amount of research. I don't know all of it off the top of my head, but I do know that uh, Long Island Sound was a glacial moraine, which is like a dam of rocks and ice. And so the, the Connecticut River Valley um, during the last ice age was actually a glacial lake. As the glaciers receded, they kind of left the rocks at the end of, of the valley and it filled up with water as the glaciers melted. Um, and eventually that, that dam broke through and is just a river now and not a lake anymore. <laughs> nice. So then if you're in charge of like monitoring river health, what are some sorts of tests that you do to check in and see how the river is doing? Sure. There's a lot of different ways to monitor water quality, and I focus mostly on chemical parameters, although 
that is expanding as we take on more projects. So um, the things that I focus on as part of my job are um, nitrogen and phosphorus, which are nutrients which will contribute to algae growth. I also look at turbidity, which is how cloudy the water is. I monitor conductivity, which is just a measure of how many ions are dissolved in the water. It's kind of a catch-all test because if there's a weird number, you can think you can start looking for reasons why that number is high. And then the biological test that we do is actually for E. coli bacteria, which is the bacteria that's found in the guts of warm-blooded animals, and its presence indicates the likely presence of sewage or other human or animal waste contamination in the water. And so that would tell you whether or not it's a good idea to go swimming or boating in the water. Makes sense. You don't really want to go swimming in sewage runoff. That does not sound like fun. So then what are some major pollutants that have historically been in the Connecticut River? Like what are the ones that we see the most of? So historically, um, the Connecticut River was actually pretty gross. Prior to the Clean Water Act, of the 1970s. Um, we didn't really have wastewater treatment plants. We just kind of dumped our sewage right in the river. Um, and not just the Connecticut River, all rivers and harbors and oceans. Um, I can't imagine how gross the world must have been during that time. Oh. But um, I know that at one point, the, the Connecticut River may have been described as the best landscaped sewer in the country. It's pretty gross. Factories were also just dumping their effluent one of the tributaries of the Connecticut River, the Millers River um, in western, central western Massachusetts, you know, had a paper factory on it. And so it used to run a different color depending on what color paper they were making that day because there was, there was no water treatment. So basically anything that came out of a pipe was in the Connecticut River. Since the Clean Water Act, there's been a lot of restrictions put in place about what kinds of things you can dump in the river. And so we've actually gotten out most of the sewage, not all, and raw factory effluent. They're required to send it to a wastewater treatment plant now. So we've gotten most of the things that you can actually see out of the river from being like just, just straight dumped in the river. The concerns that we have now are actually that nitrogen and phosphorus because we can't see it until it's, it's having an effect. So um, when there's too much uh, phosphorus in fresh water, that's when we'll see, you know, harmful algal bloom or cyanobacteria, blue-green algae. All of those terms are kind of used interchangeably, but we can get these, these growths of algae that actually produce um, toxins that are not good for people and can be almost instantly fatal to dogs and small children. So that's not good. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then if that, so phosphorus is the more controlling nutrient in freshwater and then nitrogen is the more controlling nutrient in saltwater. So Long Island Sound. And so we care a lot about nitrogen because like I said before, we contribute about 70% of the fresh water to Long Island Sound. So we want to make sure that we're contributing as little nitrogen as possible because there's too much nitrogen in Long Island Sound. There are algae blooms. And the other thing that can happen in addition to toxins being released is that it creates this kind of negative feedback cycle where 
the algae blocks out all the sunlight, which causes the plants underneath to die. And then in those plants dying, they decompose and consume oxygen. So then the fish and other creatures don't have enough oxygen to breathe. So then they die and consume more oxygen. And you end up with these hypoxic zones, which means there's no oxygen in them um, in the deep water. And so that happens basically every summer in Long Island Sound. And we're trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen ending up there so that it doesn't happen anymore. And then um, the other thing that I think that we see a lot that um, I don't really monitor for yet, although we are starting a microplastics monitoring program Mm -hmm. soon, is trash. You know, people throw trash on the roadsides, down on a riverbank. For some reason, people really love to just throw big, chunky trash down riverbanks. I'm not sure why. It would never occur to me to do that. But anyway, so we have a big source to see cleanup every year, picking up trash. And part of the reason is aesthetics, because no one wants to go swimming in a trashed river. But some of it is that that trash is going to wash down into the river, and then it's going to flow down into the ocean. And that's not good. So that's another pollutant that we see quite a bit of. It's really easy to solve. Stop throwing trash on the river. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like common sense, but unfortunately, just keeps on happening. So you were saying that it's starting to get better, especially with a lot of the the Clean Water Act that recently came out. But that's kind of like like a 30, 50 year gap is the 70s. That's now 50 years. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Has there been any more like recent, recent history that's shown any improvement or has it really just been this one 50 year range that's been better? So that was like the big federal legislation, the Clean Water Act. And I think there was a couple laws. And since then, we've seen kind of shifts in regulation. So the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is a federal agency, will issue guidance to states. And it's mostly up to the states to kind of set their own standards. You know, I have a lot of experience with this working between four different states. Each state has very different standards. So that can be a little complicated. But, you know, they are, for instance, supposed to be updating and their standards on nutrients. Um, And so we can see Vermont, for example, has very strict phosphorus standards. Uh, Most of the state drains into Lake Champlain, and they were having serious problems with cyanobacteria blooms in Lake Champlain, which is a huge recreation spot, but also provides a lot of drinking water for the towns around it. So they really knuckled down, and they have very strict um, number-based standards on phosphorus, and they haven't gotten to nitrogen yet. You know, other states are working on it. They're trying different approaches. Some of them don't have numbers in their standards, but they would say, like, if there's nutrients causing an algae bloom, then it's impaired. So they use these standards to come up with a list of all the rivers every year that says whether or not they're impaired or meeting their standards. And if they are impaired, they're supposed to be making a plan to improve them. You know, it's the tiny incremental changes with these state standards, um, I think, that we're seeing. Um, And then also, unfortunately, recently, you know, the Trump administration actually 
revoked some clean water legislation about ephemeral rivers, which are rivers that don't exist all the time. That's not as big of a deal in the Northeast where we are, but somewhere more arid, um, like the West, their rivers might not run all year. And now those rivers aren't as protected. So hopefully we won't see too many more steps backwards. We'd like to keep things moving forward. Yeah, definitely. What would you say then would be a lot of what people are legislating about? What are a lot of these major contributors to pollution that we see remaining, that is? So one thing that we're focused on, I don't do a lot of lobbying, uh, but I do have colleagues who do. And one thing that we're focused on is um, extended producer responsibility for big items like tires. So when you buy a tire, you don't pay for the whole life of the tire, you just get the tire. And then when you take it off of your car, you have to pay to dispose it. And it depends how much on this based on the state. So not only do you have to buy new tires, you might have to pay a tire disposal fee at the mechanic, or if you did it yourself, bring it to your dump and pay for that fee. And unfortunately, we've seen, you know, occasionally some shady mechanic taking the tires and just, you know, then they would have to go around, go and pay a disposal fee. And even if the consumer paid it, you know, then it's, sorry for my roosters. No, it's fine. <laughs> even if they've paid it. <laughs> um, I will close my window real quick. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> the roosters are officially a bonus guest. So even if the, consumer has paid it, it, you know, someone might be tempted to just throw them over a river bank and not pay the disposal fee by taking them to the proper channels. So there are other items where you kind of pay for the disposal fee when you buy it. I know I bought a car battery recently and I didn't have the old one with me. So I had to pay an extra $40 basically. Um, and I'll get that $40 back when I turn in the car battery. So it's kind of like a deposit, but it's also that disposal fee is already included in the price. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It seems like that should just be a standard. Yeah. And, and similar to the, you know, the bottle deposits, once again, different between different states. But, you know, when they were actually created originally, five cents, I think, was a lot bigger incentive to turn your bottles back in. And um, one thing that is the biggest, like the most amount of trash that we see is we see a lot of like Dunkin' Donuts and Cumberland Farms cups, you know, to just get tossed out car windows. And then the other thing that we see a lot of is are those little nip bottles, those little single servings of alcohol. And so I know that we've been trying to get a five cent deposit put on those, those little nip bottles so that there's a little bit more incentive to, to bring them somewhere, turn them in, and not leave them wherever you were drinking them. That makes sense. You know, give financial incentive to do the right thing. It'll turn over the people who wouldn't be otherwising, who wouldn't otherwise be doing that. That makes sense for a lot of like the more modern societies that a lot of it's consumer-based 
For more historical settings, since medieval societies seem to be the fantasy aesthetic, do you know anything about like what sorts of pollutions you would be seeing from those? I would imagine sewage, because yeah. medieval societies didn't have the greatest of that. Yeah, so I think that one of the biggest water quality concerns would be if you didn't have plumbing, that you would want to make sure that any drinking water is taken either from non-contaminated groundwater or upstream of where you're dumping your sewage. So, you know, that's a pretty important one. Um, and of course, if you had another town upstream of you, that would be a concern. So you'd probably want to focus on getting clean water from, from deep groundwater that's not connected to the river, which is why for, for a long time, water really just wasn't safe to drink. And so that's why people drank alcohol constantly. I was listening to something recently about the invention of, not the invention, <laughs> the kind of like introduction of caffeine into Western society prior to coffee and tea. Like you just drank beer all day. Like it wasn't very alcoholic beer, but in the process of making the beer, you boil the water. And so it becomes safe. And then the alcohol also helps preserve it and keep it safe for a longer period of time. And then when you make coffee and tea, you also boil the water, which makes it safe. But also people suddenly went from being mildly drunk all the time to being mildly caffeinated all the time. And so that's <laughs> part of why there was a huge boost in productivity. But both of those things were because the water just wasn't safe in many cases. And it's really hard to tell you know, obviously if there's poop or something floating in the water, you're not going to drink it, but you can't see many of the microorganisms that might make you sick. So even if the river looks clean, even if the turbidity is pretty nice, it might still be not good. Yeah. And then of course, boiling the water with the intention of turning it into something else seems a bit more productive than just flat boiling things. I feel like humans have this incentive to like <laughs> turn it into something new every time we have to put energy into it. So that makes sense. It, caffeine and beer became the two the two major ways of cleaning up your water that's kind of funny actually so how much would farming practices impact do you think because historical farming practices are way less intensive than modern like monocropping systems would that actually have a serious impact or would that be more of like a relaxed sort of less detrimental to the local rivers i think it really depends you know Currently, humans collectively are pretty obsessed with just like the most productive farming monoculture, like you said, you know, doing monoculture and really intensive farming requires applying a lot of fertilizer. And so the biggest concern with farming, I guess there's two, two concerns. So one concern would be runoff from fertilizer. And, um, you know, obviously, you're not going to be using like a commercial grade fertilizer in your tiny village or whatever. But, you know, so if you're growing a bunch of different crops, you're rotating crops, you're using crops that grow well together. For instance, like legumes, like peas and beans are nitrogen fixing. So they add nitrogen back into the soil. So that's useful. So then you're not having to add nitrogen from some other source. So I think that in general, with like home garden type farms, and I've seen some other like 
smaller family farms, you know, that are still doing it commercially. They're selling their produce at a farm stand or whatever, but they're not, you know, supplying Walmart with potatoes. There's not a lot of runoff, but you still want to make sure that you're not like farming all the way up to the river's edge. Often you want to be farming along a river because when the river floods, it brings up all this great sediment and deposits it on the land. And that's what makes great farm soil. That's why the Connecticut River Valley um, has some of the best farmland in the country because the Connecticut River flooded and just when it was a lake, all this great sediment full of nutrients got deposited on the land. One concern might be, like I know if you also had livestock, and so you put all of the manure in a pile and then you would want to spread that in the spring, for instance. But if it's a similar to a northeastern climate where it's the ground is frozen in the spring, you would want to wait until um, the ground thaws to do that. And it's tempting to do it when it's still frozen because you can't do anything else. But if the ground is frozen and then it rains and you have spread all that manure on your field, chances are it'll just wash away. That's a good practice to prevent runoff. You would want to keep a buffer between wherever you're farming and the the river of like tall shrubs and grasses, and that will kind of act as a filter. It will also keep the riverbank from eroding. The other livestock concern would be that keeping your livestock fenced out of the river. One, you wouldn't want them pooping in the river, but I know that cows in particular are very destructive to river banks. Um, They are very bad at walking downhill. And so they like, I don't know, lock their knees or something and then like destroy the river bank (laughs) walking down into it. So while it might be tempting to like give them access to river to get a good drink, they're, they're going to destroy the riverbank. And then with a failing riverbank, you're more likely to be losing some of your land, you know, as the river erodes it away. And we wanted that land because we wanted to farm it, you know, it's, it's a valuable spot. So what would some of these concerns like physically look like? Like what can you observe with the naked eye that a medieval society could then recognize in a river other than like obviously sewage, but are there any signs that you can see with the naked eye when it comes to stuff that you test for? Yeah, um, most of what I test for you can't really see except for turbidity, but there are definitely things you could look for. So you would want to like look for algae or like slimy rocks or like way too many plants, like a seemingly, like if there's a spot and there's no plants, you know, you're in like a a rocky headwater stream, there shouldn't be like a full green spot in the river maybe. Mm. So seeing that, you would maybe know that there's something weird going on. Something else that you would look for that it's not something that I test for, but that you can test for is you can look at the, the critters that live in the river. So the macroinvertebrates, which is mostly the bugs, but also crustaceans and other small creatures, small invertebrates, but they're still big enough to see with the naked eye. You want to see a variety of them, um, and you want to see lots of stonefly and mayfly larvae. Those are usually an indicator of a healthy stream. And then if you all you have is like like mosquito larvae and black fly larvae and leeches, like any water would have some of them, but if that's all you have and you don't have any other kind of bugs, that's an indicator of poor water quality. 
And then same thing for fish, that you'd want to see a wide variety and sizes of fish appropriate to the stream. I'm not, I don't know as much about the fish, so I can't rattle them off in, in the same way. But for both the fish and bugs or macroinvertebrates, you can look up an integrated biotic index, an IBI, and it will basically show you kind of like a species lineup of different species that are either intolerant, moderately tolerant, or tolerant of pollution. And so if you're dominated by those tolerant species, that's a, a good indicator that the water quality is not great. The bugs that, like, that can deal with pollution will be in the polluted areas and nobody else. So if, per se, not to completely 180, but if, per se, there was like... um like a dragon of some sort that has a habit of poisoning rivers. How far do you think that pollution could run? Like, do you, how far would those toxins really carry? Do you see, like, I guess the, the easiest way to phrase this is like, how far down a river does it take for pollutants to really get washed out? But with like the context of like, if a dragon settled up <laughs> river in your small town is now scared of yeah. the dragon. <laughs> so I think there, there are two things to consider from whatever the toxin is. So one is like how water soluble it is. These aren't necessarily toxic, but I can use them as an example. So nitrogen, for instance, is very water soluble. So once it's in the water, it tends to stay kind of suspended and make it all the way down to the end. Whereas phosphorus mm -hmm. is really sticky and it really likes to stick to sediment. So there is some dissolved phosphorus. But what we see is that it kind of sticks to dirt and then sinks down to the, the bottom of the stream. And then when it rains, all that gets churned up and then it moves. So phosphorus kind of tends to move in pulses where nitrogen kind of is more of a steady trickle if it's a steady input. So, you know, if you had something that was water soluble that really stayed suspended in the water, um, that could make it pretty far. And then the other thing that you would be concerned about or would be in your favor is dilution. So if there's any tributaries, they would obviously be adding clean water or not poisoned water. So that would dilute it. So if you're starting up, you know, in a, in a tiny headwater stream and then a bigger, you know, two similarly sized streams join, you know, you're gonna have three times as much water as you started out with. And probably more because you're getting ground, picking up groundwater along the way. Mm. So, um, for instance, with bacteria, a lot of the times, if we have a hot spot where there seems to be some source of contamination, by the time there's another tributary, it tends to get diluted pretty effectively. So, you know, if there's some tributaries in between, uh, that would probably be a good protection, depending on the poison. I know some of them are pretty yeah. poisonous. <laughs> yeah. Green dragons. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. So basically, if you know that there are tributaries between you and wherever that dragon is, it could be a lot closer than you think if it's getting <laughs> diluted that fast. Okay. Makes sense. And very useful specifically for my campaign. Okay. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, just to wrap up, are there any misconceptions that you think people have about river health or what it is that you do that you want to just take a chance to clear up? I think that, you know, one of the misconceptions is that if it looks and smells fine, it must be clean. And I think mm -hmm. that people are, are understanding more and more that that's not 
quite true that there's plenty of things we can't see that can be pretty bad. Another misconception uh, is about swimming in particular. So Mm -hmm. after it rains, water washes off the land um, right into the river and carries anything with it, including any poop on the ground. (laughs) I get to talk about poop a lot for my job, which is fun. Um, But anyway, so what we see is spikes in bacteria after rainstorms. And I know that prior to me starting this job, if you'd been like, is the river cleaner before or after it rains? I would have said after, it's all got all that fresh water in it, but that's not true. The river's a lot grosser Mm -hmm. after it rains. So you definitely wanna wait to go swimming one to two days, uh, depending on the size of the river and how heavy it rained. Wait for all that kind of gross rainwater stuff that it brought with it from the land into the water. Wait for that to clear out before you jump back in the water. Yeah, I had not realized that, that, but that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. Apparently, there's a lot that goes into how far down a river those pollutants can go. The Black Dragon stat block seems to suggest that there is a lot of decomposition going on in the waters around its lair, so those types of pollutants would probably be more bacteria. Green dragons, despite having poison-type breath weapons, actually do not damage their water systems like I thought while doing the interview. They actually seem, like, kind of harmonious with their natural landscapes, which I'm not sure how to feel about. They tend to stick to forests, according to the lair section of their D&D Beyond page, and seem to just be, like, apex predators of their region more than anything else. A lot of figuring out how to tell if water is healthy or not is probably going to be mostly useful as a descriptor, because as creators, we know if we want it to be healthy or not, so all that's left is communicating that to our readers or players beyond just having characters drink water and then immediately start vomiting. Like, small factors can help call attention to a river's health and nudge the audience along towards understanding how the region is doing without any visceral forced interactions. In fact, a lot of this earth science section is learning about the world in one direction of research and then retrofitting all of it. In our worlds, we figure out what it is we want, and then the science can tell us how that would present in a day-to-day life. Social sciences, as I will be starting up in October, are not going to be exactly the same. What I'm planning for this next section is mostly breaking down what we already know exists, fantasy tropes, where they come from, and how we want to engage with them as creators. And then I'll be expanding that out into questions of social mores, which is a fancy word for social norms, that we can then include or not include in our settings. I'll be diving into where our norms in our world come from, and then see how they could be used or misused in a fantasy setting. And we'll have a wonderful little artistic surprise from Dylan Desmaris, so look forward to that. This won't be starting next week immediately, however. I am taking a week off. Not so much as a vacation, uh, it's more of trying to get ahead of the schedule again. So next week there won't be a new episode, but I'm currently working on fleshing out my YouTube channel with the playlists that I keep on talking about, as well as subtitled videos. So if you know anyone who would you think would like the podcast, but if they could read it, that should be coming up shortly. 
I'd also like to announce that we have officially hit 250 downloads on the podcast. It's not massive in comparison to other people, but it's already more than I expected because this means that it is officially more than just my parents and immediate D&D party members listening. So that is genuinely a success. <laughs> Obviously, this is a gap year project to keep me busy before it's really like an attempted career or anything, but you know, for a gap year thing, this is going pretty well. So genuinely, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you for listening to my lectures. And in return, I am making sure that they are very well scripted to save you from my ramblings. And as always, if you have any pressing questions for me or just want me to take a look at what you're building, just reach out. I have an email at fromthevoidup at gmail.com or I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fromthevoidup. Last week I said that I would start posting more and then immediately stopped posting more. Um, so, you know, I'm trying. I'm doing my weekly Hi, There's a New Episode posts and I'll try and start actually putting other things in throughout the week. But of course, my DMs are open and I will reply to messages better than I can post initial things. So seriously, feel free to ask me anything, even if I can't make a whole episode out of it. I really do like doing the research, so just send me stuff, I'll send you stuff back. Or hey, if it's a big enough question, I'll add it to the endless list of episode topics. Thank you so much for listening to From the Void Up. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming site you use and leave a review if you liked it. Or if you didn't, honestly, reviews help me get noticed on platforms, so feel free to drop them on whichever platform lets you. Special thanks to Jerry Reticuliano for the theme music and Dylan Desmaris for the art. I have been your host, Tyler Hadar, and in the meanwhile, keep on building. I'll see you all in two weeks.